0: Thank you for listening. To our returning listeners, welcome back. If this is your first episode with us, we're so happy to have you join us, and we highly encourage you go back and listen to episode one to better understand the context of this story and the importance of why we're telling it. And if you value the story and message we are trying to amplify, please share this podcast with your friends, families, and communities. Gracias.
1: Hello. Throughout this podcast, we will be discussing and sharing unfiltered and sensitive stories about deportation, family separation, racism, and trauma. This episode also contains explicit language. Please take care of yourself as you see fit. What is the first thing that you remember about that day?
2: I always want to say it's Earth Systems, but I think it was either like, it was Mr. Newber's class. I just remember the teacher. I was in the back right corner, just kind of sitting there. And at that time, I, I I had no respect for my teachers, or at least for most. So I get a random call from my dad and I just answer it point blank. I'm just like, hello. And my dad's just like, I need you to listen to me like right now. He's like, immigration is at Miller's. Um, we don't know how, how like we're gonna get home. And just be ready, cause shit's about to go down. Cause a bunch of your friends, parents, are being deported.
0: Welcome to Solo éramos niños. In this episode, we are centering our story on a single community and exploring the events and aftermath of the Swift and Co raid through the voices of those who lived it. I'm Angel Lopez,
1: and I'm Shelby Lopez.
0: Empecemos.
3: Welcome to Cache Valley, a hidden gem nestled against Utah's mighty Wasatch Range. Cache Valley is known for its warm community, open landscape, beautiful neighborhoods, and vast wilderness. About
1: an hour north of Salt Lake City, through a winding canyon pass, which if you catch in the right time in fall, is an explosion of color, and in the wrong time in the winter, is a white-knuckle drive. Guarded on nearly every side by towering mountains is Cache Valley, Utah.
0: Welcome to my home, the place where I made lifelong friends, where my family took root, and even where I met the love of my life. This little community is where our story turns to next. The Miller's Meat Packaging Plant in Hiram was one of the six Swift & co-locations that were raided in the largest single-day immigration raid in U.S. history. Hundreds of people in my home and my community were devastated by the raid. A single event upended the lives of so many, including myself. We'll hear more about how that day unfolded later in this episode, but first, let's introduce you to Cache Valley.
1: Cache County encompasses land that was taken from the Shoshone peoples. As European colonizers moved farther and farther west, the area was often visited by fur trappers. Mormon settlers began to take up permanent residence in the valley around 1850, this settlement shaped much of what Cache Valley is like today. I think it's important to mention that by the time that Mormons were settling in the area, Utah had only been a U.S. territory for two years. Before it had been captured and seceded through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Utah had been a part of Mexico.
3: When I came here, the first time it was in the snow, and I said, who is going
2: live here in this I said, full of snow? I'm not going to be here. Wow.
1: You- cash valley feels like a world unto its own something about the big empty fields and the canyon can make you feel like a million miles away from the rest of utah and the circle of mountains makes it all feel so big and at the same time so small the main road from the canyon runs like an artery connecting each of the smaller municipalities in the county that same road eventually turns into main street which takes you wherever you want to go Cache Valley is made up of several smaller towns like Nibley, Providence, Smithfield, and Hiram. But most of the land is dedicated to agriculture. After all, Utah State University, the State University in Logan, started as an agricultural college.
0: Go Aggies! Logan is really the heart of Cache Valley. It's the most populous municipality and boasts much of the retail, restaurants, and events. And it's growing a lot.
1: We joke all the time that we're turning into my dad. Every time my dad drives through Hiram, where he grew up, he just shakes his head and he talks about, oh, it's changed so much. And over there used to be the library, and over there was so and so's house.
0: And now, when Shelby and I are driving through Main Street, we do the same thing. Like, look at all these new buildings. Or remember when that one store used to be there? It's ridiculous.
2: (laughs) There are several
0: sides to the faces that make up Cache Valley. Utah State University brings in a new crop of young, active students that call Logan home during the school year. Then, during the summer months, the elderly snow bunnies migrate north to escape the southern Utah heat. Holding it all together are the families and people who anchor Cache Valley, a significant number of which are Latinx. According to the 2020 census, there are about 137,000 people in Cache County, 83.2% of which are white, 11.2% of whom identify as Hispanic or Latine, the second largest racial group in the valley, and the average household income for Latine families in the valley is roughly $41,000 annually. I want to add an important disclaimer that census data, and much other data specifically concerning Latine people, is skewed at best. This comes back to the pervasive fear among the undocumented community regarding sharing their information without knowing how or who might use it against them. This is especially relevant in considering the 2020 census as the Trump administration wanted to add a question regarding citizenship. This was done in part relying on that very fear that undocumented people wouldn't complete the census and therefore the data would not be as accurate, which affects political representation as well as resource allocation.
1: In terms of employment opportunities, seven of the 15 largest employers in Cache Valley are factory and plant jobs. This includes the Swift meatpacking plant. Many in the Latina community make up the working-class labor force of these plants. On the last episode, we mentioned how Swift and company maintain their profit margins in part due to hiring undocumented workers. So much so the La in Michoacán, Mexico, is an unofficial sister city to Hiram due to the number of migrant workers that flow between the two towns. But for a time, this flow of workers stopped, as on December 12, 2006, Cache Valley's quiet agricultural hideaway was shaken as families were torn apart
2: and overshadowed bueno, pues, by pues este fear. era muy temprano cuando. Cuando entró un compañero, corre, corre, corre y empezó a gritar que estaba en Pues fue una cosa triste, porque repente... Next, we'll take
0: a deeper look into what the ice raid at the & Co plant looked like through the eyes of the Cache Valley community.
2: Nunca había pasado a pesar de los <laughs> años que yo ya tenía ahí. Yo lo tomé a broma. Le dije, no puedes. Dijo, no. Corra, avísele a los compañeros. Uh, so yeah, my full name is Jonathan Steve Mejia. I currently live Jones in... Johns was Palme the voice Bay, you heard uh, at the Utah's beginning of this little episode. ...little city outside of Salt Lake City. Originally born from L.A., and that's where I consider home. That's where all my friends, family uh, currently live at. It's just me, my mom, my dad, my brother, and my sister here in Utah, but they live an hour and a half north. Uh, in a little town named Logan.
1: John's dad was working at Miller's during the raid. As you heard earlier, he called John during class to let him know the raid was underway. He describes further where he was and what he remembers from that day.
2: So I was in high school. I was in ninth grade. And I was 14. And I believe what this was like before Christmas break, because my parents were like, hey, we need to buy your yearbook. We need to buy your yearbook. And then once the raid happened, uh, we completely forgot about it, and I ended up didn't. I ended up not getting my yearbook, my freshman yearbook, until my last day of my senior year.
1: John's father reassured him that because he and John's mother had the proper documentation, they were cleared to leave the plant. His father told him to be prepared to support his friends in the difficult times
2: ahead. As soon as we hung up, I stood up, packed my stuff, and my teacher was like, "Where are you going?" And uh, I was like, "I don't give a fuck about this class. I need to leave." And he didn't—he didn't try to stop me or anything. I just walked out. Halls were empty. By the end of that class period, you could see all the—you could see whose parents were already caught or who was catching uh, the story. Because again, this was before social media. Like at this point, unlimited texting wasn't even a real thing. Hence, why my dad called me instead of texting me this. But yeah, I, I remember it being a very gloomy. And dark like it was already a gloomy day but when that happened it literally felt like just dark I, I talked to a couple of my friends their their parents were okay um those that were crying I kind of just gave them their space I, I I was 14 i I really didn't know what to do or say or like I, I was just lost of well I was I just had no words for comfort at all uh but top of my mind was just going to catch out TD going to Woodruff and getting my brother out, and then just waiting at home until our parents got home.
1: Once he was home, John reunited with his parents, and the true depth and breadth of the raid began to unfold before him.
2: It was probably like around 5 or 6 p.m. that day, and then that's when it kind of like hitting harder, because we were renting a basement room. They ended up catching that guy, and he was a really good friend. Like always looked out for me, always like, gave me rides. If I was hungry, he'd take me out to go get food. Like Really, really, really genuine good guy. And then a little bit after that, my uncles call my dad, and my aunt in Minnesota ended up getting uh, ended up getting caught as well, and so she ended up, ended up ultimately getting deported.
1: John's aunt was working at the Worthington, Minnesota plant that was targeted on the same day.
2: Well, and that's when it all kind of started hitting. And then on top of that, right, my parents knew of friends where both parents were taken from the kids. And that's when they're like, all right, we need to just at least drive to a couple houses, see if these kids are okay, see if we need to take them some food or see if they need to come to our place. And thankfully, like at that point, like the Latino community was pretty close. Like Logan's a pretty small town. Everyone knows everyone or everyone knows someone that knows someone based off of like what I have heard from that experience. Like there are multiple families just going out, driving all night, either delivering food, Or taking kids into their homes and trying to figure out how to like kind of get them on their feet and kind of get them through that dark period. Around the time that John was answering that call from his dad at Logan
0: High, about two miles down the road at Mount Logan Middle School, teachers began receiving word of the raid.
4: In 2006, I was teaching at Mount Logan. I was teaching sixth grade and that would have been my second or third year that I was actually at Mount Logan.
0: This is Jan. She taught in the Logan City School District for many years. She is a great teacher, a mother of many, a grandmother of even more, and she deeply cared for her students. Personally, she was an amazing influence for me and so many of my friends growing up. Here, she recalls what that day was like as a teacher.
4: It happened like during the day, and we got word of it, and we were concerned for um, a lot of our kids. And it seems like we got an email before the day was out that kind of told about what was going on. And I don't remember if it was the, that afternoon or the next morning that kind of gave us an email that was the gist of, we're not going to discuss it. We're not going to ask any questions of any of our kids. We're not going to ask anybody if they were impacted, basically, because it's a, it's mm-hmm. a privacy and you, you can't ask them about what's going on at home kind of a thing, but we need to assure our kids that they're safe and we're gonna take care of them. It was hard and, and you did wonder who was impacted um, because the kids didn't talk about it and they probably were told we don't talk about it because we're scared. I remember worrying about my students that were affected I just was like um, almost unbelievable how tragic and horrible that would have been for my students. So I remember really feeling a lot of sorrow and sadness for anybody that was affected, but also frustration because I didn't know who was affected. Hands were tied, couldn't find out. But another thing, too, is just how embarrassed I was that I was part of a a country that would be part of that. And I was disgusted.
0: In the days following, Jan and her fellow educators continued to teach like nothing had happened while casting a blind net of caring and kindness over their silent students.
1: As the school day concluded, after-school programs, which provide care and community for many Latine students while their parents are at work, had initially planned for a day of holiday festivities.
3: Uh, I'm Todd Milovich. I'm the Education Outreach Coordinator for Utah State University, uh, which means I do after-school programs in our local elementary schools and middle schools and a couple of high schools. Uh, so back in, in the day uh, when this raid happened, uh, we didn't really have an official after-school program at South Cache uh, Elementary, but we did have Chloe Beacom. And Claudie had Latino Youth Club in her classroom after school every day. But her goal was just to keep the kids safe and working and provide some activities. So we had a group of tutors that were working with Latino Youth Club at that time. Uh, when the rain happened, it was the last day of school before Christmas vacation. And so we were planning a Christmas party. We were going to make gingerbread houses and we were going to sing songs. And so I went out with to, to the club. Expecting to be there to make gingerbread houses and sing songs, mm-hmm. and uh, when I walked in the door, uh, all the kids were crying. Some of the kids have, were kind of huddled in the corner, um, consoling each other, and I had no idea what had happened. Uh, Ernesto Lopez uh, was one of our student uh, teachers at the time, so Ernesto was there, and I had planned to be the song leaders uh, for the party. Uh, we bought all kinds of goodies, uh, but all the kids—all the kids were crying, and some of the, the kids were trying to console each other. And I had no idea what had gone on. Uh, and Connie came right over and told me they had been arrayed at Biller's. That you was—it know, was—it was, it was a shock for everybody. Um, it was especially a shock because it was just before Christmas. It was the last day of the school. A lot of the kids didn't know if they could go home. A lot of the kids didn't know if they'd have parents if they did go home, or you know what to do to to school. And Connie were trying to find out whatever information they could find out about it, trying to find out who's you know whose whose parents had been affected by the raid, who's you know what where where kids could go to stay, where they could be safe. Uh, it, it was horrible. It was it was absolutely horrible.
1: People who keep these programs going, such as Todd, were caught completely unawares as how to help support their students. So
3: you know, none of us do what to do. Like, well, what do you say to somebody who's just whose parents might have just been hauled off? You know, what do you say to somebody who's it's Christmas time and 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 their whole life just got ruined? What do you say to somebody? You, there's nothing to say. You know, there's, there's all you could do is just be there. I mean, you can't say it's going to be okay, don't worry, because, it's not, you know, maybe it is and maybe it's not, you know. <laughs> there was, like, there was really little that we could do besides just be there. Eventually, I think Connie was able to to find out uh, whose parents had been affected. I think the school was able to arrange uh, other families for some of the kids to stay with. So the, the kids were, eventually were all able to leave school and either be at a relative's house or a friend's house or their own house if if, if their parents were there still.
1: While word of the raid spread throughout the valley, many within the miller's plant were cornered and thought desperately of how to get back to their families if only they could just get out the door. One of those terrified employees was Francisco.
2: No,
0: well... That day was well complicated. I don't know. I had a feeling that something like this would happen. I can't really explain why. So that day i got to work usually one arrives early around 5 a.m and we were just about to get to work when the rumor started that immigration was outside and yeah there was an emergency exit nearby and we dared open it and sure enough there they were the company the factory was completely surrounded there they were. We opened the door and they started telling us, give us your documentation, bring us your documentation and we'll let you go. So we closed the door and said, we're surrounded. They started calling us over the intercom, line by line. Started calling line 1, 2, three. They started taking us from one place then to the cafeteria where immigration had set up base waiting for us and interviewing each employee. They had come ready with a list of names, the names of which some of the employees were working under as well as their real names. It felt impossible to lie to them.
1: As Francisco and his co-workers were herded into the cafeteria, he described a feeling of hopelessness and could not help but feel like his fate was sealed. Francisco viewed what happened next as nothing short of divine intervention.
0: Well, my sister-in-law and one of my wife's friends worked at the factory. When I was in line, they noticed me, and my sister-in-law called me over and said, No, what are you doing? Get out of line. Come over here. They were sitting at one of the cafeteria tables, having already gone through the process. The ones who were able to stay got a bracelet and the ones who didn't have documentation or could prove their identification they were taken to the buses and were taken away they filled immigration buses some were taken to jail others directly deported but that day they told me not to get in line she took off her bracelet and gave it to me saying here put this on and Of course, her wrist was significantly smaller than mine, and I did what I could to get it to stick. So I put it on and started walking around like nothing was wrong. And yeah, well, thank God for everything. Well, because he commended ourselves to him.
1: Francisco has worn workers' hands, swollen and calloused from a lifetime of work. As he spoke of his experience, he fidgeted and twisted his scarred fingers. At times, he had to pause, his overwhelming emotions choking the words from him. During the interview, we invited him to hold a rosary to act as a lifeline and a comfort. As you might hear, the sounds of clicking beads accompanied us throughout this interview.
0: We were some of the last ones to go through as the raid ended. I saw a surge of immigration agents that came in to inspect everything inside and they went and still brought out several people who were hiding. They already had them in zip ties tied by their hands and took them directly to the buses. So I just walked by and went to the locker rooms and thought to myself, well, I'll just change and get out of here. And yeah, I tried to get out of there, but the plant was still surrounded. They didn't let anyone leave. They told us we couldn't leave. And I had the wristband, so I thought maybe I should just get back to work. So I went back to my line and was there when they called me. My supervisor got there and told me, hey, they're calling you up to the office. And I felt a lot of fear, because they told us that for those who didn't show up here, they would show up to their homes. And I felt a lot of fear for my wife, so I thought, I don't know, I should just go and turn myself in. I went up to the office, and there was four people there. By the time I got there, there was an agent who called up three people. They said their names, they got up and got taken away. But they didn't call my name. And that's when I thought hey maybe I shouldn't turn myself in so I got up and wandered the entire plant walking around stopping and talking to co-workers and was just watching them work because they were getting back to work and they were telling me no just wait everything will be over soon and yeah the shift ended I walked out, I saw my wife who was showing up with one of her American friends And they saw me and I had to put on a brave face She had come to pick up the car Because she thought that I had already been taken away I didn't have a way to communicate with her So we got home and just said, let's get out of here One of my sister-in-laws told us, come stay with us. Another one offered up her home as well, and we did. We stayed for a week while we found an apartment here in Logan. But I don't know. We just really didn't know what to do.
1: The scramble for safety was seen throughout the valley as the day wore on and the true devastation of the raid became manifest. Individuals and families sought divine comfort as many still gathered at the Catholic Church to celebrate Dia de Guadalupe, though many more stayed at home, afraid ICE would target the church next. Individuals in the community reached out to provide support for children who found themselves without parents or spouses who found themselves alone. Fran and his family were a few of those who tried to hold the community together.
5: My name is Fran. Um, I am from the Dominican Republic, but I did grow up in Cache Valley, specifically in Hiram. And I spent 27 years of my life up there. So now I live in Salt Lake.
0: Fran was a student at South Cache Middle School, the same middle school where Todd would later find himself that same afternoon. Fran tells us what he remembers of this day.
5: I was in the 8th grade so whatever age that is and I remember this day actually really well because no one knew what was happening for a while um, we were at like lunch and the school I went to it's called South Cash it's maybe a mile from from Millers so we could see this helicopter and, you know, how kids are. They just start making rumors up. And they're like, oh, yeah, a fugitive is on the loose and this helicopter's tracking them down. And we were like, oh, holy crap. Like, how are they just letting us be outside? And then later on, like, walking through the halls, you'll see these certain classrooms. There are certain classrooms that they would do, like, Latinos in action and stuff like that. So they're, like, these certain teachers that had either like, a soft spot for Hispanics, but you would see, like, little groups of these children, these Hispanic children, in there crying. And I'm like, something's not adding up. You know, like this is, that's where Miller's is at. My mom's over there. Like something's not adding up. And then I heard about a raid and I was like, what the hell's a raid? And then I heard about ICE and I was like, ICE? Like I didn't know about any of the stuff. That day I was kind of exposed to all that at school. Fast forward a couple hours, I get home and my mom's not home. And she doesn't get home for a while because um, as you know, they, they had everybody held up. And they weren't like, anybody leave or anything like that. And then I get home and they tell us in Spanish, like, we know what inmigracion was, but not ICE. And she's saying, yeah, they, they, raided, they raided the Millers. And I was like, no way. Like, there's kids arriving to their house without parents that night because they both were taken. Um, it was hard to process. And thinking back, like, I, you know, as a kid, you kind of just, like, sit there and just, like, take it in and be like, whoa, like, holy shit. And and like freeze basically and just watch things like it was a movie. You know, and then the days after it got more real.
1: With the realities of the raid setting in, Fran thought of those around him and what this meant for those he cared for.
5: I remember thinking about a specific family. They also lived in the trailers. Like a line of that whole family. And I just thought, I know these guys don't have papers. Um, I don't know where they work or anything, but you know, I thought of them because they had a lot of kids. Um, it was, you know, multi generations. So, you know, I thought of them and I was worried about them. And, you know, I, the first thing I thought was, how can we help? Because at that time, like, you know, I was in scouts and stuff like that. And it was all about service. So I was like, how do we help? How do we help? My family started getting involved with helping out. And but it was so I remember the exact spot I was standing. I could go there today and be like, I was standing right here when I saw that helicopter.
1: At the time, Fran and his family were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormon Church. Within the organization of the church, your local congregation is divided by geographical location. These congregations are called wards or branches. For members of the church, their ward or branch often becomes their whole community and support structure. One of the most important tenets of the faith is service. This belief, in concert with the intricate organizational structure of the church, makes for an efficient vehicle for support and resources.
5: We were Mormon, and we were part of a Spanish ward. And many of those people worked at Miller's. Many of them were illegal, um, And so the consequence of that was just tons of children going home without parents, without having any contact to their parents and stuff like that. So that was my exposure to it on the first day. The adults started coordinating stuff the day of. Um, But then I know we helped out for several weeks, but it honestly all feels like like one giant day You know, I just I always remember we had a Jeep and I remember just sitting in the Jeep Grabbing stuff handing it to the parents and then they would go to the door You know and give it to them and that was just our night every night for weeks, so it feels like you know, it's been so long it feels like it was like one huge-ass night, but Like there's no way it was
1: as community members worked into the night, Cash Valley knew that this event would continue to impact many in the weeks, months, and years to come.
3: You just gotta realize that everybody's gonna be on your tail
0: from five o'clock until the day you die. In the next episode of Solo Éramos Niños... So my dad, he basically just told me how it was that immigration raided JBS that morning and that uh, we're probably not going to be able to go out for a long time. We would have to like quarantine until things cool down around here. Also, he told me that uh, I'll still be able to go to school, but just to make sure that like if I see any police present, to try and get a hold of them. But he told me just whatever happens, like at the end of the day, we'll find a way to be together. So it just kind of left me like, especially at that age, not really knowing how to take it in. I didn't know I didn't really know what to do with it. The only thing that I was scared was the fact that my life it was probably in jeopardy. In episode three, we will take a deeper dive into understanding trauma and talk to those living through the aftermath and the impact the raid had on them as individuals as well as their families. Hasta la próxima
1: solo eramos niños was written produced and edited by angel lopez and shelby lopez music by chris hillock cover art by alexis Rausch. featured audio clips were taken from logan somos tus vecinos by chrysancio lopez gonzalez and welcome to cash valley links provided in the show notes thank you to all those who were interviewed we recognize your courage and hope to honor your story Keep up with this story and others like it by subscribing to Solo Aramos Niños, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review and follow along with us on Instagram at Solo